Welcome to the Becoming Your Best podcast. We're here to provide you and your team with the resources, tools, and content to achieve your greatest potential. For those interested in additional resources or services, such as the weekly planners, online planners for Chrome or Outlook, keynotes, live training, coaching, or certification, you can visit our website at becomingyourbest.com. Now, when you listen to an episode that resonates with you, we invite you to share it with your family, friends, and team members so that they can experience the same type of motivation and results in their lives. Also, if you haven't already subscribed, please hit the subscribe button. It works on Apple, Stitcher, Google, or whatever platform you're using so that you can get a new podcast reminder each week. Now sit back, let's get started, and we hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to all of our Becoming Your Best podcast listeners, wherever you may be in the world. This is your host, Steve Schallenberger, and we have a special guest with us today. She is a national expert on inclusive language and an international keynote speaker with more than two decades of experience researching and speaking about inclusive language. She is also the author of the forthcoming book, and she'll tell us about this, uh, The Inclusive Language Field Guide, Six Simple Steps or Principles for Avoiding Painful Mistakes and Communicating Respectfully. So welcome, Suzanne Wertheim. Thank you so much for having me, Steve. It is a pleasure to be here. Oh, good. And uh, I've been looking forward to this because our language has such a big impact on everything that we do, on relationships and other things. And so before we get started today, I'd like to tell you a little bit more about Suzanne. After getting her PhD in linguistics from Berkeley, Dr. Wertheim held faculty positions at Northwestern, University of Maryland, and UCLA. She's done field work with speakers as diverse as Tartar nationalists and the former Soviet Union, Native Americans in Central Cal, comedians in Los Angeles, and female engineers of San Francisco and Silicon Valley. In 2011, Suzanne left the university system in order to apply her experience to real-world problems. <laughs> and currently, Dr. Wertheim serves as the CEO of Worthwhile Research and Consulting, which specializes in analyzing and addressing bias at work. At Worthwhile, Suzanne offers customized training for clients based on her original research and leads both short-term and long-term consulting engagement. She has a long list of clients that we'd all know their names. So let's just get going, shall we, Suzanne? Delighted to do it. What a very thorough intro. I'm very excited. So yes. All right. Well, tell us about your background, including any turning points in your life that's had a significant impact on you. I'll tell you that actually a big turning point was going to grad school. So in my book, I share my own mistakes, not all of them. I didn't have room for that, but I shared my own mistakes and my own process of learning. And for me, I, I would say one of the biggest turning points was I used to see the world a particular way before I learned how to analyze language in a very scientific way. I would say things like, well, I wouldn't mind if someone said it to me or, hmm, aren't they being oversensitive? Or I wouldn't understand 
I don't know why, why certain things showed up. They, they didn't, the patterns, I didn't see yet the underlying patterns. And I very honestly feel like both my grad training and then all of the research I've done since then, I feel like I have a superpower. I tell this to my clients. I feel like I've been given x-ray vision because there's stuff that used to be opaque to me and now it's very transparent. And so what I try to do with this book and then with my other engagements is give people as much of that x-ray vision as I can. So for me, the turning point was science. Oh, I like that analogy that you're using and help people have x-ray vision so they can see what to do. And I must admit, at least in my lifetime, language is far more important today, even than maybe 20 or 30 years ago. There's so many different things we need to be sensitive to. I appreciate one of the comments you said that, oh, that person is just oversensitive. Well, (laughs) that's a problem if we think that way. We need to be sensitive because we every relationship is important and we care. So what makes language inclusive and what keeps our language from being inclusive? So I would frame this as even you're saying language is more important than ever, but I feel like that's in some respects a surface expression of a cultural shift that I've been watching happening, which is that a change in etiquette. So I would say 21st century etiquette, which has a lot of people I talk to very nervous. They're like, oh, I'm going to say the wrong thing, or I'm going to get canceled, or I'm going to hurt somebody because I don't know what to do. There's a lot of stress out there. But what I try to say to people, I don't try, I actually say it to them. 21st century etiquette is the same as 20th century etiquette. The only difference is that when I was growing up, there were all kinds of people that it was okay to ignore or be disrespectful to, or pretend like they didn't matter. And I think what's happening is that we are holding ourselves accountable in a way that we didn't used to and saying, these people deserve to be treated with the same respect, consideration, valuation as other people, also that they exist. So I'll give you one example. I'm Gen X. And so I'm a kid of the 80s. And I was raised in school and in college. I didn't take a lot of hard science in college. But I was raised to think of gender as there being only two genders. So that you're female, you're male, you come out, people people say, it's a boy, it's a girl, and we're done. And a few people would have very expensive, difficult surgery to move from one gender to another, and that was it. And it turns out that that's just not scientific reality, right? So there's a whole group of people that I didn't know existed, and now I know better and those people are have different names, but sometimes it, the, the umbrella term is often called non-binary. And so there's so many ways that the English language presents gender as if there's only two. And so even though in your brain you might think, okay, now I know there are non-binary people. I talk to people who suddenly have a, a non-binary or transgender grandchild or child, and they're like, I don't really know what to do. And so I say, you know, there's so many things to watch out for. People think about pronouns, but I want to talk about things like when you say all the men and women at our company, or you open up a thing. I, I was just on a train giving a, gave a keynote in Milwaukee and I took the train to Chicago and the conductor kept on saying, ladies and gentlemen. And I had just been talking on a podcast with a transgender host who said, every time there's an announcement saying, ladies and gentlemen, I feel bad. So that's what I would say is that the etiquette has shifted and now we just have to figure out where are these tiny bits and pieces in the language where we're not in alignment with our good intentions. Well, I love your perspective. It's an issue of becoming more sensitive and taking more responsibility for people. And maybe this has always existed and we just 
that hasn't been at this level. What are the biggest minefields, Suzanne, that you see out there in inclusive language or needing to be more inclusive, things that might trip people up? I mean, I, I see a lot of minefields. I collect a lot of stories through what I call employee experience interviews. So a lot of my data comes right from the mouth of people who I say to them, is there ever a time at work that you felt like you were being marked too low? I, I, like at a particular company, a company saying, how can we do better? So I'll say to somebody from a marginalized group, from an underrepresented group, so somebody female or somebody who's a person of color, someone who's perceptively disabled or different categories, I'll say, is there a time you felt like you were being marked too low? People were treating you as lower than your actual position or is there a time you felt like you were being pushed out towards the margins or outgrouped altogether and you were central? And they all have stories. And so I'll tell you that I think the biggest minefield, very honestly, is a lot of people use language that shows that they don't have high expectations for or think highly of people who don't fit their prototype for a job. So they'll say things like, with surprise to a, a Black person who's just done a presentation and done a good job. Oh, you're so articulate. So I've got a Black colleague that I co-lead an inclusive language workshop with. When I've been called articulate, it's always been clearly a compliment. We're like, oh, you were so articulate about this difficult stuff. You spoke so well about it. When she's been called articulate, some of the time it's been a compliment and she's a fantastic speaker, but some of the time it's been shock. Like, oh, you went to, you went to Stanford and and you you speak in this standard dialect and you speak. So I would say very honestly, the biggest minefield, and I have so many examples of this, where people are, I call it presumed incompetent or presumed non-technical. I work in tech a lot because I'm in the Bay Area. So a lot of my clients are in tech. And again and again and again, women tell me that people treat them like they are technically incapable when they're in fact very skilled and specialized and very knowledgeable. So that's, I think, the sneakiest the sneakiest one and very pervasive and very hurtful to so many people. Mm, I, I can see exactly what you're saying. In other words, we might even have bias. We know to, may not even realize that that bias is coming out and influencing our speech. Yes. And let me give you, uh, I mean, a hundred percent. In fact, um, I was just talking the other day to a crowd about how language is, is so complicated. It's really our most complicated skill. And it takes so long. Think about little kids who learn to be grammatical long before they learn to be appropriate, right? So there's so many stories of little kids saying things that are very grammatical. Like sometimes kids' gram grammar mistakes are very cute, but sometimes they do a thing like if people still use a telephone, well, they'll just say something and be like, okay, and they hang up a phone or there's so many things kids do that are inappropriate. It takes us a long time to learn what the social expectations are for our language. And so we can have these conscious ideas that we absolutely believe in, genuinely believe in, like all genders are equal or people of all races and all ethnicities are equally capable, right? There's variation within every group, the same. Some people come out great and some people less great, right? And then because we've been programmed to speak a certain way in, in a more old-fashioned way, like we learned from adults when we were little and they learned from adults, with our language patterns, we're often replicating very old-fashioned norms and ideas and the stuff that comes out of our mouths or our fingers is really at odds with our conscious thoughts. So this is why being scientific and figuring out where those pain points are, where those problems are. A lot of nervous people are less stressed after talking to me because I'm like, I got six principles. 
Just make sure you're following the six principles. You're going to have to do a little research. You're going to have to ask questions of people and then you're good to go and you can self-correct. I like to consider myself as a fair person. I mean, I, I feel like personally that I can learn from every single person that I meet. And yet in today's world, it can be a little bit challenging. I'd like to give an example and I'd really love to get your advice on this situation because I think it place into this. Recently, one of my grandchildren, eight years old, was visiting. And I was talking with a man. He's a large man who has changed genders, dresses as a woman, has a woman's name, but he still has a deep voice and is really strong. And I'm visiting and this grandson is looking at this, you know, the deep voice and After this person left, he said, Grandpa, was that a man or was it a woman? Now, I gave an answer, but I'd love to see what would you recommend that we say? (laughs) It's tough because, you know, we respect that person. And and yet I've got to say it's a little tough for me. And I'd like to get my bias out of there and really focus in on that person and teach my grandson right. What are your thoughts? My thoughts are, I literally wrote my book in part for people in these situations. I made it so you only have to read to chapter three, right? Because I had family members in similar situations. So when people transition later in life and they haven't been able to do puberty blockers and hormone blockers, then it's hard. Transgender people call it passing, right? So there are people that I've learned when they trusted me that they were transgender and I had no idea at all. Some of them are my undergrads. Some of them were colleagues and they had transgendered early enough that they were able to take on the physical characteristics of the gender that they felt. So I would say that for anybody in your position, I mean, I'm not here to, I'm not like buy my book, but I'm just saying so many people are in this position that I literally front loaded everything. So you only have to read a chapter three. So let me give you a little synopsis of chapter three. Now, when we talk about gender, and the thing is also things are going to change a lot. The terminology is going to change, even though the science isn't. So we're all assigned a gender at birth. So we emerge from a mother and then, oh, sometimes now people are, we emerge from somebody who carried us, a pregnant person, and a doctor looks and makes a call. This baby is a boy. This baby is a girl. So we call that assigned female at birth or assigned male at birth. Now, especially in the pandemic, a lot of people, when they didn't have a lot of social pressure to perform as a person for other people, a lot more people have come to terms with the fact that they're not the gender they were assigned at birth. And so people have different names for themselves, different labels for themselves when they are not that gender. So some people will say they're agender. Some people will say they're genderqueer. Some people will say they're transgender. Some people will say they're non-binary. So for this person, it sounds like there's somebody who has transitioned that they realize that they were assigned male at birth, but actually, and I think eventually the science will figure this out. And by the way, there are plenty of cultures that are not English speaking that have had names for people in this situation for millennia, right? So we're just catching up. We're just catching up. But there are plenty of people who've had these ideas, a lot of First Nations people, a lot of Native American people, a lot of people in the Pacific Islands areas have had names for a long time. 
So the answer is whatever gender somebody tells you that they are, you refer to them with that gender or that label. So if that person says, I'm female, then you're like, okay, this woman. And and you say woman. If this person says, this is my name now, you don't use what's called the dead name, which is their old name. You use their new name that goes with their new gender presentation. It's what it's called. And when you explain to kids and kids get it right away, they can get that somebody isn't performing gender the way that we expect, right? Because they were, sometimes people will call it trapped or they were in a body that didn't match their gender. And now the body hasn't changed as much. So you can say, this is somebody who, when they came out from their mom, the doctor said they were a boy, but actually it turns out they're not a boy. So they're changing. And so inside they're a girl, but their appearance doesn't match as well as some other girls who were able to get the hormones that they needed earlier. And and that's it. And a lot of kids, my friend's kids, now I'm in the Bay Area, so this has been more openly discussed for longer, but my friend's kids have no problems with pronoun use and with labels. You know, for them, it's just the way the world is. So there's so many kids I know who are six, seven, eight, who have a much broader vocabulary than even I. They're much more fluent than I am in this stuff. For both my benefit and the benefit of our listeners, sometimes on emails or other things, we'll see when a person has their name at the end, it'll say she and her, or tell us what that means. Why are people putting that and what's the benefit? So that's called pronoun presentation. And it's useful for a lot of people. I'll tell you that I showed up, I was maybe going to do a research project with some people at Stanford. And so I showed up looking for the female postdoc who had emailed me named Michelle. And it was a tall Italian guy named Michele, right? And so if this had happened early enough that he, and this is the guy who all the time people thought was, you know, if it was email only, they always thought that he was a woman, right? And so it can be beneficial, I'm going to say, not just for people with gender presentation that might be ambiguous. So there are people who use pronouns that we consider sort of the former, like you can think of like as regular. So for a long time to refer to only one person, you would say, let's just say she or he, keep it simple and not use all the other forms. And I'm going to tell you that we have know how to say they for a single person. It's just when that person isn't known. So uh, a teacher might send out an email, somebody left their sweatshirt on the bus, they need to pick it up tomorrow you know, or else it's whatever. So we we know that it's only one person, but it's a, a single person who's known that we have to learn how to do it. So people who are transgender or non-binary feel so much social pressure a lot of the time and feel so othered. Or there are people who are non-binary who look very feminine or very masculine and are constantly misgendered or misrecognized. So if only the people who are quote unquote weird put their pronouns at the end of their email signature, or if we were on Zoom, you would see that I have it set up for Zoom and Google Meet and Microsoft Teams. I've always set up. So every time I send out an email, it says, Suzanne Wertheim, PhD, parentheses, she, her. And that way people know what my pronouns are. And it makes it so that the pronoun conversation is already going. It's not just that quote unquote weird people present their pronouns, that everybody presents their pronouns. So it's a normal thing to do. And then everybody knows. And again, there are plenty of benefits for people named Blake or uh, not Madison anymore, but I still know a few male Ashleys, right? So it's not just for people whose gender 
identity is is different than you might expect, but there's a, a lot of people with ambiguous names. So it's this new etiquette that I'm talking about. And I think that's going to become more and more common. And it just makes it easier to know that you are being polite. Because one rule of 21st century etiquette is that you don't misgender people. How can you make sure you're not misgendering people? They volunteered their pronouns to you. And so you already know how to gender them. Okay. Uh, Thank you. That's a good answer. And let's say that I blow it. Let's say one of our listeners blows it. How can you apologize and move on from making a mistake in language? So I've talked to people about this. You are guaranteed to make mistakes. I, I am a former professor of linguistics. I've learned multiple languages. I promise you that when you change grammar, so pronouns are grammar. They're not like, you can learn, if you go to a restaurant with a new cuisine and it's got a, a new dish, you can just say that new dish from that point onward. It's so unproblematic, right? You're like, oh, I really want to eat this tagine or whatever. Like we take nouns like that into our vocabulary like a snap. But grammar words get kind of stuck around puberty and it's hard to change. And when you get to my age or your age, you've said she to refer to one person or he to refer to one person literally millions of times. So I promise you there is a 0% chance you're not going to flub it when you're using they to refer to one person. There's no chance. So what I've been told by multiple people is a simple, either if you figure it out yourself, a self-correction Oh, she, sorry, I meant they, and you move forward, right? Or if somebody corrects you, you say, oh, goodness, so sorry. Yes, they, I'll try to keep that in mind. And then you work really hard to correct it. What you don't do is make a big, big deal out of it. I was talking to someone recently and their manager keeps on messing up and isn't making that effort needed to move to the next level. And then makes the biggest, oh my goodness, I keep on forgetting that you're non-binary. And so it doesn't make that person feel seen or valued or welcomed. It feels like their manager is only focusing on how different they are and how hard they're making it to be polite. They're an obstacle to politeness rather than a full human being asking to be treated with respect and recognized for who they are. Every one of us in business is really looking for highly productive high-performing employees. That's what we want, employees that can make a difference. And so dealing with this has a real impact on business, both in a financial terms and employee retention or turnover. So what's your point of view on this, Suzanne? How can language harm a business and even a reputation? I have many thoughts on this. I just finished up a three-part newsletter series about it, which it's called problematic language is expensive. So when do people reach out to me and say, hey, Suzanne, I need you to come in and run a workshop for these people because they finally figured out that it's costing them money, right? But a lot of companies haven't figured it out yet. So I'll give you a few examples of the way that just a few words can cost money. I've got an example of a sales rep who talked over the female tech expert who was next to him and used two words, misgendered a hypothetical person who was actually in the room, he assumed that somebody was male because it was a technical role. And that person was a woman and in the room. And uh, the person I interviewed who was there said she watched that that $4 million dealer go down the drain as soon as he said, oh, just talk to your IT guy. He'll get it. She watched that deal disappear six months in the making. I've had high level talent acquisition people say that they had 
especially speaking of highly productive, you know, a lot of people acquire expertise and have very niche expertise and you can be hard to find them and expensive to find them and you try to bring them in. And then if they are misgendered or people make an assumption about their sexual orientation, they'll say, oh, your husband or your wife, they see a wedding ring and make an assumption that they're heterosexual or they see a self-presentation and they assume that they're male or female and there may be something else. Candidates withdraw. They're like, if I can't be treated with the most basic decency, if somebody can't even imagine that someone like me exists, or someone has told me like, I get pulled out of my flow state. If somebody sends me an email and I'm in a flow state, which is the most productive, right? And somebody misgenders me, that flow state is gone, right? I don't want that. I just want to, I love my flow state. Or marketing people have been putting some bad stuff in there and they alienate clients. Or people very often will just quit. People lose high performers because they have felt so unwelcomed and so unrecognized by their colleagues that at a certain point, sometimes they just feel unsafe. And they're like, well, why would I take my time and energy and do this difficult work educating them how they keep on hurting me or or disrespecting me or making me feel bad or whatever? Why am I going to bother? And they literally just, they literally just leave. Those are just just a few of the examples, but it's it's expensive and it's invisible. Yeah, totally. Huge cost, huge return, and very costly if you have a culture that is not sensitive. And respectful. I mean, your book is so much about the golden rule. There's so much alignment with inclusive language and your principles, right? For example, the golden rule and building and maintaining trust and being accountable and applying knowledge. All of these have a language component to them. They're not only language, but if you want to be a a good leader that people trust, if you show your good intentions, for example, with inclusive language, this is what I tell people all the time. Everyone expects you to make mistakes. Like if you're learning a foreign language, you're going to make mistakes. If you're learning this new kind of language, even if it's just in English, you're going to make mistakes. But people are so willing to give you grace and forgive you when they see that you're making a mistake because you're trying, as opposed to, I've given a few examples of people who make it seem like it's an obstacle or a difficulty or like sighing or, you know, like all of these things. Why are you, why are you so difficult when the problem is with the person who's not shifting with the times and recognizing that more, more people exist and are in their company than they used to think? Oh, I'm just beyond shock how fast these interviews go. We're right at the end here and so many more questions I have. I mean, like I want to hear those six steps. I guess, well, I'm excited to get your book and also order the Audible. I can't wait. And this is important for any culture, for any family. This should be a subject that we talk about and increase our sensitivity to. Before we wrap up today, Suzanne, what final tips would you like to leave with our listeners today? I think the tip is that if you practice just a little bit every day, you can make progress and you can find ways to practice. In my book, I give activities. So it's my book is secretly a six month course. And so I've set you up so that you can practice a little bit each day in the privacy of your own home. So then in a business setting or a higher stakes setting, you've already had that practice. And so your tongue or your fingers know what to do because you've already done it rather than doing it the first time. So that that's my biggest tip. Just like learning a foreign language, Duolingo emails you every day, like practice, practice, practice. And I'm saying it's the same thing. Five minutes a day, 
can do real wonders for your abs and for your language. Okay, so tell us about your book, the title of your book, and how can people find out about what you're doing? So the book is The Inclusive Language Field Guide. It is now available by the time your listeners are hearing it. It's available anywhere books are sold. It is a paperback. It is an ebook, and it is me narrating an audible or any other audiobook format that you have for seven hours and 55 minutes. I read it slow, so when people speed it up, it still sounds okay. I don't sound like a chipmunk. And the best way to find me and learn more is at SuzanneWertheim.com. I recommend that people sign up for my newsletter because twice a month, I give away knowledge. Once a month, I give away an article that gives people tips. Those are business-oriented articles for the most part. And two weeks later, every month, I give away free advice. Readers email me with an inclusive language question. And if it's a good one, I anonymize it and I give away that knowledge. So if you want to know more, little bits, little five-minute reads twice a month, you can get them for free. It's been such a delight. Dr. Suzanne Wertheim has been with us today. Thank you, Suzanne, for being part of this show. Thank you so much for having me. It's genuinely an honor. And congratulations on the very impressive and important work that you're doing. Thanks again. And to all of our listeners, we're so privileged to have you with us, to listen in, to be part of the show. It says so much about you, your desire to do better, to make the world a better place, to have strong relationships and and live these principles of becoming your best. So thank you for being with us. This is Steve Schallenberger, your host, signing off. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Becoming Your Best podcast. If there was something in this podcast that you felt would be helpful for a family member, a friend, or even a coworker, we invite you to share this podcast with them now while you're thinking about it. Also, remember to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Now, for additional resources and tools, such as how to join our monthly peak performance coaching program, or how to get certified as a trainer or coach, or schedule a workshop or keynote, you can visit our website at becomingyourbest.com. We're here to provide you and your team with the resources, tools, and content to achieve your greatest potential. So thank you for listening and have a wonderful day and a great week.